because of vacation coming up and so on and so forth, uh, there'll be too many interruptions, uh, but we'll wrap it up tonight and we'll just briefly cover everything, at least in an outline form of what uh, we would be talking about those weeks. Verse number five, Paul says, let this mind be in you, which also, which was also in Christ Jesus. The Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. The Bible tells us that, it, you know, out of our heart comes all of the issues of life. Whatever is in our heart, whatever we, whatever we think, whatever we meditate upon, that's what is going to dictate the manner in which we live. And that's why it is absolutely essential that we have the mind of Christ. And uh, two weeks ago, uh, in the, well, we had the grand three, three weeks ago, I guess, in the first message on the subject, I spoke about seeing the mind of Christ by listening to the messages of Christ. In other words, we learn of Him by listening to Him. And uh, so we went through the New Testament and took in consideration the different things that He said. What He said about His commitment to the Father. And that reveals, you know, what was on His mind. We saw what His compassion was for others. We spoke about His, his character and His conduct and His courage and his communion with the Father, and even the calmness that he possessed as he was on the cross. And in all of those things, we get a picture of what the mind of Christ was. And so today we're going to consider the text here, but we're going to consider the, the factors that made him uh, the great person that he was. Probably everybody here remembers whenever the... WWJD uh, bracelets and signs and uh, bumper stickers, they were everywhere. Uh, it became a lucrative item, I'm sure, for a lot of Christian bookstores. Everybody wanted a WWJD. What did Jesus do? Uh, that's really an important thing to think about, by the way. And uh, there was a there was a book that saying actually came from, was derived from, by a man by the name of Shelton many years ago, where this community of believers in this little town, and they all decided and coveted together that they would do whatever Jesus did. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to make a resolution that that's what you're going to do. It's another thing to carry through with it. Because when push comes to shove, it's a whole lot easier said than done. But that was the idea, and they had a good idea, and it spoke about the changes. It was a novel, by the way, and it was just speaking about the, the changes that took place there in that community. So, uh, But I think there's a better question than what would Jesus do, and that is what did Jesus do? Because whenever we look at what Jesus did, it takes all of the guesswork out of it. Saying, you know, what would Jesus do is one thing, but saying what Jesus did is something else. And that's exactly what Paul tells us here in these verses. 
that uh, begin in verse 5 down through verse 11. And so let's take time to read all of these verses. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Boy, I'll tell you, I don't know of any more sublime statement that has ever been made than what we see here. The old English preacher, F.B. Meyer, and some of you might, might have read some of his commentaries or devotions, but he was, uh, he was a very well-known preacher. And in commenting on this section that I just read, this was his assessment of it. He said, in the whole range of Scripture, this paragraph stands in almost unapproachable and unexampled majesty. And I don't know how anyone could really deny that as it describes who Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and the greatness of him as expressed by the recognition and the exaltation of Christ by the Father. So there's no denying the fact. And the whole purpose of, of these verses here is easy to see, especially if you go back and you read chapter number 1, and you see Paul writing to a local church, and it is a church, although it was a very good church, it was not a perfect church. There was some bickering going on. They were not of all the same mind. Some of them disagreed one with another. Uh, some were living only to please themselves without any consideration for the other members. And so Paul is writing to them with the hope of helping them maintain unity in the church and to serve God together. And, and the factor that draws them all together He's right here in these verses where he says that they are all be of the same mind. That's verse 4, I think. All be of the same mind. Think alike, but at the same time, they are to all have the mind of Christ. Wouldn't it be amazing the, the changes, the differences that would take place in, in our homes, in, in our community, in the churches, how different it would be if we all did what Jesus did if we all thought like Jesus thinks and so here is Paul setting forth Jesus as the perfect example of what true greatness is all about now that shouldn't surprise anybody I'm certain that doesn't surprise you we all recognize his greatness but in everything in everything about him, we see what man ought to be. In other words, he is the very essence of greatness. And, and, and there, there are not enough words anywhere to adequately describe how great he is. You know, the word great is, 
It's an interesting word, and it's one that's often misunderstood. You know, we talk about people being great entertainers or great athletes and what have you. And a lot of times we attribute greatness to people when they are undeserving of it. And there are a lot of folks that spend all of their life trying to achieve greatness. That's all they've got on their mind. They want to be a somebody. They want to be great. And uh, so they spend all of their effort, all of their time trying to become great. You know, they're trying to get to the top rung of the ladder. And so we hear a lot about greatness and people talking about it using the you know, terms like climbing. You know, we got to ascend into into greatness. We got to get higher. We we got to be going up all of the time. And yet, whenever we read what Paul has written here, we find just the opposite. We do not ascend into greatness. We descend into greatness. You see, the world's got it upside down. They think of somebody being great as somebody that lifts themselves up and somebody that is exalted among men, somebody, you know, they have it made. They're a great success story, but that doesn't make them great because the way up is down. Whenever we think about, you know, the world and and the attitude of the world toward people and, and, and you know, what we would refer to sometimes as great people, they generally think about, you know, what a person gets. You know, if, if they get fortune, if they get fame, if, if they finally get that platform where they've got power and are able to, you know, to hold un, others under their authority and so forth, then, you know, we, naturally we attribute greatness to people like that. Uh, they rise to the top of their profession or whatever it is. So, we think about it as, as getting, but in reality, greatness has to do with giving, not getting. Because it makes no difference how much we get. If there's no giving, there's absolutely nothing that, that is going to impress the Lord about it. A lot of times, you know, we think about the, the, the greatness of a person that is served by others. You know, they, they've got a lot of servants, they've got a, a lot of a lot of pull they got a lot of power and so forth and uh, so they must be great uh, and yet the bible tells us that it's not by being served it's by serving others that tells whether we are actually great or not so the world has it backwards you know i really suspect that deep down we all know that's true I mean, you know, come on, we, we surely can't be that deceived about the matter of greatness. And, and I say that because not only our reasoning tells us that the world has it upside down, but we see it by observation also. The Bible teaches us that this philosophy of greatness as defined by the world is wrong. Absolutely wrong, regardless of what people say about it. But then we think about just the observation, what we've seen, not only by what the Bible says, but what we have observed over the years, those that are called great. One of the most irritating things to me is the fact that a lot of famous people are looked upon as great people simply because they've become famous. 
It might be that they became famous as a result of being able to hit a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. It might be they attained their greatness by, you know, winning a golf tournament. It might be the result of the influence they have in Hollywood, or it might be in politics, or it might be some kind of entertainment. And it's really irritating to me to, you know, here will be someone that's 24, 25 years old, and uh, and all of a sudden they win a singing contest, they get a record label, and now they, you know, they go off and start going on tour, making millions of dollars, and all of a sudden all of the little teenage girls want to be like Taylor Swift and so forth, God forbid, but anyway, uh, that's what I'm talking about, that that all of a sudden, then that gives them a platform, and, and don't make no mistake about it, most of them take advantage of that. They'll start talking about everything from global war- warming to to socialism, and all of the political issues, and they've got something to say about it, and they don't know anything about it. And, you know, all all they know is, is now I'm famous, people will listen to me, and they end up misleading multitudes of people. How sad that is that we attribute greatness to people that have no right to be called great. And it's obvious that, that you know, whatever you think of greatness, I think you have to admit that if there is no... If there is no contribution and no satisfaction in it, then it surely cannot be called true greatness. And whenever you observe the lives of these people, and automatically names start coming to my mind of people that, that achieve what we would call greatness, and yet they were miserable. Think of all of the entertainers, for example, that ended up dying of drugs or suicide. Uh, I mean, they had the whole world at their feet, so to speak, and they were absolutely miserable. And that's because of the fact that they never understood what real, true greatness is all about, that it's not about what you get, it's about what you give. It's not how many people are falling down at your feet like you're somebody, but rather it's you ministering to the needs of others. And... um, when we look at this, there's never been such a demonstration of self-effacing humility as what we see here with the Son of God. And, and it says he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he knew who he was. Of course, Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word's with God, and the Word was God. He knew he was, and yet, and yet, knowing who he was... It says he made himself of no reputation. Now, whenever we look at at this and, and what Jesus did and what is said about him here, it shows us the way to genuine greatness. And there are five things that Paul mentions in these verses that reflect on the greatness of Christ. Number one is in verse 7, the verse I just quoted from, and it has to do with self-renunciation. He says that he made himself of no reputation. Most people are trying to make themselves a somebody. You know, they want to be a somebody in this world. Jesus was willing to be a nobody, so to speak. 
He wasn't out there trying to entertain people and to gather a, a, a great crowd just for the sake of exalting himself. It wasn't about that at all. It was the renunciation of himself. It was not that he just sacrificed in giving up certain things, but it was the fact that he denied himself by the way. That is exactly what he said back in Luke chapter number 14 where, where he lays down the demands of discipleship. He does it in chapter number 9. He does it again in chapter number 14. And, and he basically breaks it down into three areas. Verse 26, verse 27, and I won't deal with them, but notice verse 33 he says, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Well, that's pretty blunt, isn't it? You, you have to forsake everything. Now, back in the other verse that I mentioned there, he said you have, to, you have to hate your mother and father and what have you, and by the way, your own selves also. And he was speaking in relative terms. Of course, we know that God doesn't want us to hate our parents. We know the Bible says otherwise. But God's using language there that we can relate to, language that we can understand. And in comparison with our love of God, our feelings about others, the only way you could classify it would have to be as hate because our love for Him ought to be so great that our feelings for everybody else, including ourselves, ought to be as though it was hate. In other words, He has to be first in our life. And, and a part of making Him first in our life is the fact that we're willing to deny ourselves that we're willing to to renunciate ourselves, disconnect, as it were, from all of the things of the world. And whenever it comes to this matter of giving up, as it were, uh, that's you know that's the breaking point for a lot of people. They don't mind being identified as a Christian. They'll be a follower of Christ as long as it's all about what they get out of it. You see, in other words, they kind of think of. Of God as a Santa Claus, jolly old Santa Claus, you know, a celestial Santa Claus up in heaven. And as long as He'll just bestow all of these blessings upon me, as long as He'll help me with my problems and get me through this and get me through that, oh yeah, I, you know, I'll follow Him. But look, it's not about you and it's not about me. It's not, it's not about the benefits of us what we get from God, it's rather what we're willing to give for the Lord's sake. And the Lord says here, the standard is everything, everything. Now, you say, well, preacher, none of us do that. I mean, surely he doesn't expect me to just empty my bank account and give it all to the church, or surely he doesn't expect me to spend 24 hours a day down at the church building or anything like that. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that for his sake, in order to do his will, that we've got to be willing to make whatever sacrifice is necessary. That's the point. It's not a matter of whether you do or not. It's a matter of whether you would or not if required from him. And it's real easy for us to say, oh, yeah, I would do that. But when push comes to shove, boy, that's something else. But when you look at the life of Jesus Christ, there is nobody that can say that he failed in regards to this matter because he, he gave up everything. And uh, not for what he would get, 
but rather for the sake of what he could give. Now, notice the second thing about his greatness. There's not only the self-renunciation, but there's servanthood. Verse 7, and he took upon him the form of a servant. Now, look, look at verse 4. Now, here in verse 4, remember, he's speaking to the church about the problems that existed there. He said, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, we know if we're honest that most people tend to keep their focus on their own things. In, in, in other words, on their own business. They're thinking about how this relates to me and so forth. But Paul says, don't do that. But notice, but every man... And here's an important word that, that many times I've heard preachers and teachers leave this out. But it's important. But he says, but, but notice, and every man also on the things of others. So he's not telling you to, to not be mindful of your own things. That's stupidity. We ought to be mindful of our own things. We, you know, whether you're paying your bills or whether you're getting a physical checkup or whatever it is, we ought to be mindful of our own things. But at the same time, we ought to give equal consideration to the other person. And so this is the challenge that Paul is presenting to that church here, that don't just think about yourself, but rather think, about the others and we all ought to feel that way in regards to every person in the church i mean we all talk about being of the same body we talk about being of the same spiritual family and what have you and that's why the bible says we're to have the same care one for another and you want to talk about phony baloney if you think that gets done you're kidding yourself we treat some people like they've got the plague. We treat some people like, like they're idiots. We treat some people like they're not worthy of our time. And you know it happens and I know it happens, but it ought to never be that way. It wasn't that way with Christ. It shouldn't be that way in any church anywhere. And here, notice, he took upon him the form of a servant boy, there's never been any better picture, I don't guess, than there in the upper room when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper and washed the stinking feet of his disciples. That that picture in my mind is just so amazing. It, it just blows me away to think about the Lord of glory washing their feet. Wow. Now, he wasn't establishing an ordinance when he did that, but rather he was giving us all an example of the way that we need to minister to others. If we're not serving, there's nothing that smacks of greatness about us. We ought to, everyone, be servants. Now, certainly we all do a lot of different things. We don't serve in exactly the same way. But we all ought to be serving the Lord. And true greatness always makes of itself a servant. Now, notice verse 8. Here's the third thing. There's self-renunciation and servanthood that we see in Christ. But then there's humility. Notice, he humbled himself. Now look at back at verse 3 and, and keep this in connection with what he's been saying to the church. Notice in verse 3 he says, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better 
than themselves. Think about that a little while. Consider others better than themselves. Our flesh doesn't like that. Our flesh pitches a fit when we try to do that because there's still the vestiges of our old nature that wants to be front and center, that wants the spotlight on us. And we really don't care who gets hurt, who gets trampled underfoot or anything else. Just as long as we're in the spotlight, just as long as we're getting the attention, just as long as we're being praised for it, you see. Well, notice with Christ, boy, if anyone was praised worthy, it's the Lord. Amen. And think about it there in Revelation chapter 5. You know, that whenever all of the saints of God are gathered at home, the angelic choir is gathered round about the throne, and the theme of the song that we sing is, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. And, and that same person, worthy is the Lamb, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. Now notice the fourth thing. Not only was there humility, but there was obedience. And it says, and became obedient unto death. You know, it's one thing to obey whenever it's not costly. It's another thing to obey when it's going to cost you something. And boy, it's really something when it's going to cost you your life. He became obedient unto death now that doesn't mean that there was a point that he wasn't obedient and he ultimately became obedient it's talking about him condescending into this world and he became obedient as he became a man as he became a servant as he humbled himself he became obedient even unto death and then by way of explanation he says it was the death of the cross and that's significant, by the way. You know, Paul could have just said, obedient unto death. Well, end of story. Well, not really. It's not the end of the story whenever it refers to Christ. Because he says, even the death of the cross. And the important thing about that, and I, I suspect every preacher at some time or another, we've tried to describe for people the agony of Christ on the cross I have read numerous articles by physicians who uh, who gave their depiction of his suffering and described it, you know, in the, in the most vivid ways possible and what have you. But when all of that is said and done, when you're talking about the death of the cross, you and I have absolutely no idea, no comprehension at all as to the greatness of that death, the price that he paid on the cross. And, and, and you said, well, preacher, we can read all about it. His visage was marred more than any man. And, you know, we know all about the suffering. Sure, we understand. No, you don't. Because the greater suffering is the part that you couldn't see. And that's wherein that he was separated, as it were, from the Father for the first time in all of eternity. He was separated, you see, from the Father because it was then, during that time of great physical suffering and spiritual suffering, when God turned the world dark for three hours, it's then 
that he pays the price, the suffering. If you could just take all of the suffering of every person that has ever been in hell or that is in hell or will be in hell, if you could put it all together and roll it together in one neat package, it would be what Jesus endured on that cross. That's obedience. He held back absolutely nothing. He was obedient. And there is no greatness for any of us without obedience unto the Lord. Now that brings us to something else. We see the self-renunciation and the servanthood, his humility, his obedience. But notice verse number 9. We see exaltation. Now this isn't something that he did but it's something that he earned. In other words, he was exalted as a result of, of what he had done. Wherefore, in other words, because of the things that I've just mentioned, wherefore, because of that, God also hath highly exalted him. Now, when we talk about greatness, we generally think about it in terms about what other people think about us. Oh, we're really somebody. We're really great because, you know, we did this and people recognize it. And and because of that, they think we're great. That makes us great. No, look, God's opinion is the only one that really matters because it's what he thinks that determines what true greatness is. We can attribute greatness to a person all we want to, but that doesn't make him great. That's like whitewashing a fence. It doesn't make it one bit stronger. And so we can, you know, give him all kinds of titles and bestow honors upon him and what have you, but that doesn't make him great. He's not great until God says he's great. And notice with Christ that he was highly exalted. Now, in all of that, in all of that, we see the path to greatness. And every one of us has to decide what path we're going to take and 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 and. and how we choose or what we choose all boils down to this one question, that is, who do I want to please? Who do I want to please? You know, if our only concern is pleasing self, we'll never be great. If our only concern is pleasing others, we'll never be great. It's only when that our greatest concern is to please the Lord. And that's what exactly what Jesus said in John 8, 29. He said, I do always those things that please Him. Isn't that wonderful? You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes, you know, sometimes I do things that please the Lord. Sometimes I do, believe it or not. I really do. Once in a while, I do something that pleases the Lord. Not near as often as I ought to. But neither I nor anybody else can say, I do always those things that please Him. So the question is, what do you say? Jesus said, I do always those things that please Him. What do you say? Because what you say is going to determine what God says. And remember what what the father said about the son this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased wouldn't it be wonderful if each one of us can live in such a way that someday we'll hear the lord say well done thou good and faithful servant you see 
pleasing him is the one thing above everything that we ought to be living for because everything else is just a waste. You know, if we don't do that, nothing else is going to matter. We People talk a lot about a life well lived. Let me tell you what a life well lived is. It's the, it's the Christ-like life. In other words, it's a life that is lived in obedience to God and for the glory of God. Now, let me say one more thing before we finish. When Paul closes this chapter, Paul, of course, has he's spoken of himself as an example that is to be followed, but, but here he takes another step that I find really interesting. When he closes the chapter, he gets down to uh, about verse number, what, verse number, uh, where, where did I go? Uh, verse 14, I think it is. Verse 19. And notice he says, But I trust in the Lord to send Timotheus shortly unto you. And then he goes on and describes him. Verse 20, For I have no man like-minded who, who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own. Now remember, he's talking to the church members there. You all seek your own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. So he sets forth Timothy as an example of a person who has the mind of Christ. I, I know he will do naturally what I've been telling you to do. That's just the way he thinks. That's just the way he is. And then we get down to verse 25, and he mentions Epaphroditus here, a brother, a companion in labor, a fellow soldier, your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants and what have you. And he sets him forth as an example of someone who has the mind of Christ. Wouldn't it be wonderful if others looked upon us as examples of this very thing? To think about us outliving our life. You can outlive your life. They can bury your body, but you can outlive your life. Wouldn't it be wonderful if your grandkids would say, well, I'll tell you what, granddad or grandma, I'll tell you one thing. They had the mind of Christ. They wanted to do what he wanted to do. They tried to do what he did. That's all, you know, they... they they just their mind was just saturated with the with the things of Christ and what a wonderful testimony that would be you know it's nice if you can leave an inheritance to your children or your grandchildren that you know that that's that's nice but the most important thing is to leave a testimony that they had the mind of Christ and that's true greatness and, and you don't have to you don't have to advertise it or anything else. And in fact, if you do, you ain't got it. I'll put it that way. Uh, the great people don't recognize their own greatness. They just, all they focus on is serving the Lord by helping others. And, and uh, that's greatness. And that's the mind of Christ. That's what he did. Well, that's as far as we're going to go with this. And originally I thought we we're going, we'll take a week, uh, on each one of those five things that I talked about tonight because it's easy to do when you really go back and look at the life of Christ and the examples and the things that relate to what I've mentioned tonight. And so, I don't know, maybe this will be a springboard. You might want to do that. 
in your own private Bible study. Think about the things that we mentioned. Uh, but whatever you do, uh, just don't forget that the requirement is to have the mind of Christ. Thank you all.